Want to help your teachers save over 10 hours per week? Introduce them to School AI. It's not just a tool, it's a partner in the classroom. With School AI, teachers can plan courses in minutes, get real-time learning data, and provide one-on-one tutoring. Plus, it's free for teachers. Visit SchoolAI.com today. School AI, the classroom operating system of the future. That's SchoolAI.com. Focal Point K-12 is an innovative tool that helps teachers and students manage student portfolios. It provides a digital portfolio for students to store their work, set and track their own learning goals, and earn credentials and industry certifications. The platform also uses blockchain technology to ensure the security and safety of student data. Teachers can use Focal Point K-12's real-time dashboards to track student progress and save time with AI-assisted scoring. To learn more, visit focalpoint.education. Principles. Research shouldn't be a maze for students. Scribble offers a unified platform streaming the research and writing process. It integrates with major educational tools, ensures authentic student work, and provides educators with real-time insights. Elevate your school's academic rigor. Learn more at scribble.com. That's S-C-R-I-B-L-E dot com. Welcome to Transformative Principle, where I help you stop putting out fires and start leading. I'm your host, Jethro Jones. You can follow me on Twitter at Jethro Jones. Welcome to Transformative Principle. I am uh, grateful you're here for the Summer of AI series brought to you by School AI and AIleader.info. I'm excited to have Dr. Tim Dacey on the program today. Uh, he has uh, spent 30 years at MIT's Lincoln Laboratory, which is their national security hub, uh, where he developed and then led technology analysis and development for a wide array of challenges. He's also been a teacher and he's taught at the college level computer, uh, college level and middle school level, uh, even though he wouldn't consider himself a teacher. Uh, he has a consulting company now that focuses on AI opportunities and strategic implications for a variety of communities, including education and entrepreneurial investment and biotech. He recently published a book called Wisdom Factories, AI Games, and the Education of a Modern Worker about AI's impact on work and the education reform implications. Tim, welcome to Transformative Principle. Grateful to have you here. Thank you. Great to be here. Oh, well, first, is there anything from your intro that from your bio that I did not get? That no, you feel it, like sounds, it sounds it sounds great. I, you know, my only my, my, my teaching stints were very short, so that's why I don't advertise myself as a teacher. But it did give me enough of a perspective on some of the challenges. Uh, I, I consider myself more of a learning scientist, whether it's for humans or machines. So I think we're going to talk a lot about the future of work, which I think is the framing behind everything that education should be uh, concerned with. It's the context for the system. But also, I, I expect we'll get into, um, you know, some of the challenges that schools and teachers face. You know, what can be done near term versus what has to be thought about for more significant transformation longer term. And then, how do you get going? 
Yeah. And, and I think the thing for me is, is the value of you coming at this problem from a different angle and arriving at the same conclusion that I came at this problem from a different angle at. And in my experience as a teacher and a principal, seeing how this, how we need to reform our system and you come into that same approach. I think that's really exciting. So Again, thank you, Tim. Uh, you can learn more about Tim at timdacy.com, and we'll get to his interview here in just a moment. Time is a precious commodity. As a principal, you know this all too well. Between lesson planning, grading, and providing personalized feedback, the hours in a day can quickly disappear. What if you could help your teachers get some of that time back? Introducing School AI. School AI is not just a tool, it's your teacher's partner in the classroom. Help your teacher save over 10 hours a week on busy work, allowing them to focus on what they do best, teaching. With School AI, teachers can plan courses in minutes, get real-time data on learning, and even provide one-on-one tutoring for every student. School AI also provides a FERPA-compliant chat GPT experience. But that's not all. School AI's co-teacher feature is like a personal assistant, adapting daily lessons to student interests, checking for understanding, and even automating parent communication. And the best part, it's free for teachers. So if you're ready to reclaim your time and transform your school with the power of AI, visit schoolai.com today. School AI, the classroom operating system of the future. Visit them at schoolai.com. So, Tim, why don't we start by talking about this new and emerging field of artificial intelligence that you've been in for 35 years? How has artificial intelligence changed over the last year versus over the last 35 years? Well, I think for a long time, for a long time, you know, even going back to my graduate school days in the late 80s, early 90s, we thought of AI as a tool basically to remove drudgery. Um, to do routine decision-making. So AI is primarily a decision-making tool. Although um, what has happened in the last year is that the nature of the decisions we're asking AI to make are much more abstract. And by by that nature, they end up being useful in a lot of different um, creative domains, not just the, the routine, boring, repetitive task domain. Uh, and and that's a tremendous difference. Uh, you know, for the longest time, the talk in AI was, it'll be, you know, beyond the horizon was always going to be, yes, someday we can maybe get it to do all these fancy things. But I think it has surprised even the community how rapidly some of that has been realized in terms of its ability to deal with idea generation and um, and synthesis and generation of I'll call it insight. These are all anthropomorphic terms, but but you know certainly the text that comes out of ChatGPT, um, at some level does does certain a certain amount of cogitating and reasoning, but all it's doing is doing a repetitive task over and over and over again. The difference is that we now can make these things massive, right? The ChatGPT GPT fours sort of is on the order of the brain's size and scale in terms of all the connections and stuff within it. And by, and, and so behavior has emerged from that, but we've also given it very abstract questions, complete this text, predict the next set of text. And um, 
And that's different than what, at least through most of my career, we were working with, you know, if we wanted to diagnose breast cancer through looking at breast cancer images, that had a very constrained problem definition and a pretty constrained application. But now we have these multi-purpose tools. And I think that's the biggest difference from, mm -hmm. from what we had before. Do you think that the capability was there before and we just hadn't tapped into it? Or has it really been a recent development that um, because we have such large models now that we can actually tap into things that we just didn't have the capacity for before? Uh, you know, it's a very recent development. I remember talking to people four or five years ago about software code generation using AI. And, you know, these are very sophisticated computer scientists that I spoke with. And almost all of them said, no, we're not going to do that anytime soon. Um, <laughs> but, and, and, you know, the, the, the AI that's available to do that doesn't do it in a holistic way, just as AI doesn't do most tasks entirely. Right. But it gets pretty far so much so that, you know, something like half of the code Silicon Valley is churning out now is AI generated. Yeah. So that's, that's so we really didn't, fascinating. <laughs> we didn't predict these things and it's really a function of emergent behavior that, we still don't entirely understand, but it turns out if you make some of these systems big enough, it starts to do things you didn't explicitly design in. And, uh, and that we still don't know the limits of. There's some theories, including ones that OpenAI have generated about, hey, if I keep adding more data, how much better will I get? But these are just, uh, these systems, I think what, what has gotten the AI community to sound alarm bells is they know that these systems are babies and uh -huh. there's a tremendous, there are all kinds of opportunities and directions to improve these. And there's no reason based on the rapid growth that we can expect that it won't be able to be improved. Uh, yeah. So things like the veracity of information you get from it, there may always be problems at some level, just like it, there are getting information from a human being, but we're going to see dramatic advancement as AI is applied and these products are spun off into niche areas. The law firms will have their own with, you know, much more well-verified information. Doctors will have their own education will have their own with very different safety protocols and everything else that students and classrooms need. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. What, what types of things do you think we should be building in for safety? And I, I mean, what I'm really getting at is as schools start to adopt AI tools, what kinds of questions should they be asking the companies that are providing these to make sure that they're making good choices around it? Uh, well, okay. So there's a two, <laughs> there's a two part. I, I mean, I think there is a real problem in terms of understanding how well something will do, especially a new product out on the market. One of the reasons you see these AI companies getting their products out fast, you know, a big part of it, of course, is money. But another part of it is they actually, without lots of people doing lots of different things to the system, they can't anticipate all the ways that it will be used. And so because of that, um, they can't test the AI fully. Um, and what they do is they want the crowd, so to speak, the, the, all these creative individuals out 
there who are using ChatGPT and other tools in ways the developers didn't imagine. So a big issue from the AI company side is, I don't exactly know what I'm selling. Okay. That's one could say that's a big problem for schools, but I do believe that. And over the next year or two, schools should be cautious, understanding that their kids are going to be using these tools. They're, they're available. You know, you can try to lock down their laptops or whatever school devices they have, but they will be using these tools in, to some degree. Okay. Warts and all. So we're moving from an era where all of the test points and what software or another technology will do can be tested to now an era where I can't test all the different ways the technology will, will do. That's not dissimilar from getting a new teacher in the classroom and not knowing exactly how the teacher will react to different situations. The key is going to be making sure that you have ways to, mo to monitor what's going on, uh, that the AI manufacturers can at least make sure that egregious stuff that kids should never see are, are going to be filtered out. Um, and the rest, it's a, it, I, I very strongly believe that educators will be best off as they go through these transitions to try to figure out how to use AI appropriately to bring students into that process, you know, to say to them, look, this course might look a lot different in a year or two. Help me figure out what it's going to look like. Yeah. We may, we may try, you know, half of you use this tool for a while and half of you don't, and we're going to design an experiment to see which results in better learning, but whatever it might be, if you bring them into the process, even if somehow whatever you're trying to teach in the class is not done as well as it could otherwise have been with a different model, the students are learning so much. They're, first of all, they're getting engaged in their own and invested in their own learning. But secondly, they, they, you know, they're learning all of these big picture skills about what, you know, how do, how do we, the teacher in the classroom, how do we define what needs to be learned? Mm -hmm. given that the world has changed and how does that manifest in the ways we need to get that out? It may very well be just as an example. Um, you know, there's research out in the educational world. I wish I could cite the reference at this point, but I'm bad with names <laughs> is the um, there's research that if you pose a developmentally appropriate, difficult challenge to a kid before they learn the material, they, and let them pull their hair out for enough time that they don't get totally dissuaded. And then put that aside, start teaching them the material as you normally would. There's a lot of evidence out there that indicates that the students will learn better by the end of that process and along the way, just by showing them where they're headed. Yeah. So that the phrase we use in education for that is productive struggle. And right. Joe Bowler is a big proponent of that. And that's something that my approach to what school should look like is more along those lines that um, kids can most likely learn almost anything they need to learn in school, essentially by themselves. And they just need a good teacher to be a compass to help them see where they're going and to identify when they've learned the things that they've 
that they that they're supposed to learn. So, you know, we've had the sage on the stage and then we move to a guide on the side as the role for the teacher. And and my idea is that the teacher should be a compass among us, that the teacher is saying, here's the direction we need to be going. And you all should, you know, be moving in this direction. And my job is not to guide you there or to Mm -hmm. stand up and say, this is everything you need to know, but rather to be the compass that tells you when you're off track, that doesn't, it's not a GPS that tells you what direction you need to go to get back, but says, Hey, this is where you need to be heading. And you're not heading in that direction. What do you need to do? And how do you need to work to get back to where you need to be? And I've had success in, in running that in my own school and in teaching that Mm -hmm. in other schools. And there's a lot of power in that, that the, that productive struggle becomes, becomes really powerful. Um, so in your book, you talk about uh, education reform that is needed to get kids ready for a, a career where they're going to be exposed to AI. What about our current system is not sufficient and what does it need to look like? Sure. So the general message I'm giving in the book is at least split into three pieces. The first piece is, you know, we're we're moving toward a realm and fairly quickly, I believe, where general cognitive skills will matter more than domain-specific expertise. That is, over the arc of a career, you're going to be persistently presented with novel situations. Your job is going to keep evolving as technology changes, as paradigms change. And you'll probably, at least based on the trends that we're seeing, you'll probably have multiple careers. And so... And by that, I mean very different job types. Um, and so it is that change and the um, and the the fact that the world is changing so fast that really is 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 getting schools to pivot toward those twenty first century skills, you know the the general cognitive abilities that are m- applicable to multiple kinds of domains and problems, right? Those transferable skills. So that's the first part of the message. The second part of the message is more important, though, because that first part has been said by many, right? The second the second part of the message is it's not the best way to get there, the way we're doing things. And that is because really schools are, you know, the whole, the whole division of courses, the whole decisions about credentials at the higher education level, all of those are based on preparing people to be in what I'll call knowledge domain specific areas. If you're a doctor, you're going to be the best at medical information. If you're a chemist, you're going to learn chemistry. And high school is a rehearsal for those different choices about college. A lot of a lot of high school is, right? If you ask a science teacher why are we teaching all these things, they'll say we want to expose kids to the, you know, these different domains. But it is by it is the nature of dividing things up, right? Usually, this is true within a business, as well as, as as say a school system, which I will call, you know, somewhat different than the than the money making concerns of a business. But you, how you divide up your your functions really drives the overall ethos of the system. So if I'm if I'm in a business and I divide stuff up by marketing and sales, etc., that's a very different paradigm and has very different um, frictions, we'll call it, than if I divide it up by product line. 
and I have, you know, the people in a product line have to deal with all those things re relevant to a product. Yeah. So school has largely been divided up by expertise areas. And there are exceptions, of course, literacy we view as cross-cutting. So that's something that's taught, you know, regardless of a particular domain. But for the most part, that's been the paradigm really since mass education was formed. We're now seeing that AI is going to be doing a lot of the detail work and a lot of what we had traditionally would say is about expertise preparation. So those general cognitive skills matter more, at least, you know, one could argue whether they do now or not, right? But at least we're in that, we're in that rapid evolution toward, toward those, those kind of a transition. And that means very, very different things for how do you optimally teach it. So, so what my primary message to schools is, look, work on AI in the classroom, refine pedagogy. I think there's great work going on in that way. And it's going to be an iterate, try, fail, improve kind of situation. But there needs to be a lot of stepping back as well, because the curriculum is not set up well to teach critical thinking or creativity or problem solving. To do that, you have to tap into the, you know, we learn because you know, our memory system is fundamentally associative, right? So we have we have connections between our experiences, or you call, we'll call that episodic memory, between our knowledge and factual memory, between, you know, all these different sensory modes we have. And, you know, that, those giant network of association is what drives learning. The better network you have, the better you're going to learn. If you want to get to transferable, information, right? If you want to support those general cognitive abilities, then you have to get to the nodes in that associative network that connect to a lot of different things. And the way you do that is by having people work on problems that have trade-offs and uncertainties and that delve in, that rely on domain knowledge from a lot of different places. So I'll, I'll give you an example. I'm droning on a little bit, so cut me off if I'm... <laughs> No, so, I'm following. I'm following. So for many years when I was at MIT, we were developing games in order principally to get people to have a better discussion with us about what AI might help their jobs in what way. So we would sit them down at computers and we would have them play part of their job out in a game framework. We give them particular scenarios and say, figure it out. And then we would talk to them afterward about, you know, what did that they learned from that. So several of those games ended up being in a general category of resource management. So we build resource management game for military logistics folks, for FEMA emergency managers, for public health officials, you know, for law enforcement. And that's a general skill, right, that a lot of different jobs have. Frankly, if I want to manage my time, I'm dealing with a resource management problem, right? Yeah, so totally. So I believe that school is much better off carving up the world according to commonly um, to common challenge cognitive challenges rather than according to knowledge domains. And that paradigm shift is critical because the way you get to transferable skills is you have to get to these trade-offs and and um, and situations where one factor has to balance or be weighed against another. Where the answers are are not obvious, or maybe there isn't a single answer. Um, so there are subjects that do this well. There are teachers 
Great teachers will always do this well, but they're constrained, right? If I'm in my geometry class, I'm constrained about being critical thinking about geometry. Whereas I'm better off in a real world context, teaching people a skill that, hey, you know, the orbital path of a Mars, uh, you know, mission that we might imagine has some geometrical principles. It has some physics principles. It has some psychological principles in order to understand if people can handle it. It has medical issues, right? If you organize life around or life in a school around big challenges and then dive into the knowledge they need, you're both helping engagement directly, I think, because you're making it more tangible what this is useful for, but you're also forcing the thinking and the discussion about how these different silos are used together to solve problems. And at this point in human history, those are the skills that I, th uh, that I think matter more. And AI is really driving a lot of that. Picture this, a student drowning in tabs, tools, and notes, struggling to piece together a research project. Sounds familiar, right? Now, imagine all of that streamlined under one roof. That's Scribble. Scribble is more than just a tool, it's a game changer. Students can curate, annotate, cite, and write all in one place. Collaborative annotations, check. Automatic citations, check. Real-time feedback for educators, you bet. And the best part is, it's not just about making tasks easier, about freeing up time for higher-level learning and critical thinking. Are you worried about AI plagiarism? With Scribble, students show their authentic work process, making it genuine and credible. And I mentioned it won the Soup's Choice Award for College and Career Readiness. So if you're ready to transform the way your school approaches research and writing, head over to scribble.com and see the magic for yourself. That's S-C-R-I-B-L-E.com. Tim, it's really fascinating. I wish that you could have been at my school in the 2017 to 20. 19 years, uh, because this is exactly what we were doing. And what I found really fast is that my teachers, if I had to take, I had to take this experiential learning that we were doing out of their classroom subjects and put it in a period that was not connected to their general, to their topic so that they had the freedom to, to let it touch everything. And mm -hmm. what's so that's what we did is we gave them an hour and a half, two times a week to for kids to solve these problems that they were that they were looking at. And we said, your goal is to make the world a better place. You can define world, you can define better, um, and you can define what problem you're solving. And what was really cool is that we saw exactly what you're talking about. And you and I have never met before this, but it's like. It's like you wrapped my school and did a little case study on what we did because that's exactly what we were doing. And what was amazing was kids learned more in that in that time period than they did in their regular classes. And we had evidence to show that they were learning more because they weren't constrained in a negative way with the topic that they had to learn in that class. So girls uh teaching younger girls how to do volleyball soccer and cheer passed off more standards in that class than they passed off in all the rest of their classes that year 
because they were they had to pull from different areas. They had to learn and understand different things. In fact, one of the skills that they learned was how to fire someone with empathy and compassion, which is not on the standards for any K-12 school, but that's a skill that is incredibly important and meaningful as a human to have. And these girls learned how to do that. And that that's what I think is so amazing uh, is when we when we take the subjects away, we actually have more freedom for kids to learn even more. And one of the things that I was working on was eliminating our English language arts class as a whole because English language arts touches every other subject and it's all about right. communication. And so <laughs> you actually don't need the English class to show that you're learning those things. And it then becomes incumbent on every teacher to make sure that they are effectively communicating and effectively teaching, communicating, both hearing, receiving, uh, listening and speaking, writing, communicating outward. Uh, that is, that is really powerful. So is this, um, is this how you would describe your upside down schooling approach? Right. It, it really has two pieces, I guess, to reference sort of other educational theory. One is that it's challenge-based learning, as yeah. you talked about, right? So I, I've already said something about that. But the other is that it's it's knowledge on demand, mm -hmm. right? So instead of, you know, what I was what I was talking about is, you know, it's it's teaching the forest and then filling in the trees, um, or you are using selective selective teaching of trees to 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 give a forest view. Or, you know, another analogy is I think we tend to take knowledge and pile it up brick by brick. Um, you know, if I'm in a science class, we start out with, you know, if I'm in a biology class, we still start out with Gregor Mendel, you know, when we talk about genetics, right? Oh my gosh, that gives me such headaches, right? Gregor Mendel teaches us very little about what's going on in genetics today, mm -hmm. right? Um, don't teach it as a history lesson because you want to use history in a, the story about it to create engagement, give people interesting challenges to conjure on and they'll get interested. Yeah. You know, explain to them why we can't do X, Y, Z in the field. And, and here's, here are the problems with that. Um, but here's what we do know. And, and when you do that, I think you immediately engage the creative juices in, 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 in human beings in general, right? If you were to, if you were to get a new job, and they sit down and they talk to you about, you know, read them, read this progression of manuals for the next month. Um, first of all, no employer would do that because they want productive output from you as soon as possible. Yeah. yeah. But, but you're not going to even recall or remember most of what you were taught because you didn't get to use it. And most knowledge that we give students now will allow them to use it. And I say, we, I was briefly a, a middle school teacher and I also taught at the college level but not long enough to call myself a teacher. Um, but but we have um, a lot of these, what I, the, even the projects we assign in classes, they're narrowly defined projects. And maybe I'm teaching somebody about electromagnetics at the college level and Maxwell's equations, right? But that doesn't teach me anything about how to address a new problem. What questions should I ask of it? What are the possible, you know, different kinds of math that I might be able to use to help address it. What does history teach me? What are, what, what is a good piece of literature about this kind of topic? 
all of those things can be brought in under the under a context. And in the process, we're teaching the students to um, to you know basically to do things like the workplace does. And and I think you know replicating that model to the degree you can is I think pretty important for you know if you want people to practice to be good at situations, you got to put them in those situations. Yeah, totally. And. And what we certainly learned during the pandemic was that school is just made up and nothing really matters. And that was a, in my opinion, a horrible lesson for our, our kids to learn from it. And I saw many high school students who said, this doesn't matter because I'm going to get an A in the class anyway, and I'm going to totally stop and totally check out. And I'm still going to graduate. Not a problem at all, which you know, if our purpose is to educate kids, we we certainly educated them, but we did not educate them in a way that I think most of us would be proud of. And we we told them that these things that we put so much emphasis on before just don't matter. And so how how do you suggest we make these changes so that they're they're actually capable of sticking and really continuing on beyond you know, just what's happening right now? Well, I think there are some key pieces. Uh, I mean, first of all, we have to accept that change is hard. And, you know, most change requires, you know, I'll call it activation energy, which is a chemistry term. And that refers to, you know, getting from one stable state of, of, of a chemical to another stable state of a chemical. I may have to put energy into the system to get it there. Right, that's what enzymes do. They say they make that activation energy less. Same thing is true at an organizational level, right? If there's too much friction, if teachers are are stressed out so much, they're not going to be able to look past their nose. And and so a lot of what I think AI in the classroom is best focused on to start is how do we make that teacher workload less, so that we you know, we give them time to really think and, and and experiment at some level with how they're going to go about their next lessons and their next classes. So that's one. I think the other big thing is, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day. I mean, I come from the tech community that learned a long time ago that when you deal with complex issues, you don't try to sit there and plan it out for years. You just start trying things and you keep what works and you jettison what doesn't. And that can be, you know, the interdisciplinary part. So we're talking about, I want problems that are more complex, right? And that have a lot of squishy factors associated with them. So age appropriately, of course. Um, I want to make sure that I'm working on, on particular multidisciplinary challenges. And I want to make sure that students have some um, agency in the type of knowledge and the type that, that, you know, there may be some core knowledge pieces that everybody needs, but there's probably more individualization in terms of how students will go after that. So those pre three pieces don't have to be done all at once in one big swoop. It may be that, you know, I'm the science teacher and I'm going to go down the hall and talk more to the math teacher to make sure that I can incorporate a few things they're working on into my lessons, right? So that there's 
some synergy between the different parts of a day that a student is learning. Or maybe I'll, I'll work a common problem that we agree is a nice challenge that sort of pulls out both pieces of knowledge that we like. Um, it, it could be that, as I said, we get students invested in the process of change itself and say, let's, let's, I want, I want to, the class to experiment with different ways of using AI, you know, and, and you guys can help with that. And that gets both the teacher and the students invested in the change. And that allows you to get a lot more feedback, of course, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and, um, and so it, you know, that you, you have to start chipping away. It doesn't have to be everything at once. The reality is standards are a real constrainer. I mean, one of the, the unfortunate thing, and I don't mean that standards are unimportant, but, but when you, when you create standards, you, you essentially try to lock in something, right? Um, and it, this is, this is what we must teach. And, you know, we need the opposite. We need a lot of individual creative educators trying a lot of different things. And, yeah. um, and that, that is a, direct friction with what they're generally asked to do, which is to follow according to the standards. Yeah, totally. And a, a good example of that to illustrate why standards can be so damning is that when you have a standard, you also have a finish line. And mm -hmm. so if, uh, for example, I'm, I'm writing a book right now um, called Bad Advice for New Principles. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, like and, and one of the things in there is talking about standards. And one of the examples that I used, and I, I, I just wrote this chapter this last week. So it's fresh on my mind is that the standard for third grade math in the state of Washington is to be able to do multiplication and division up to 100. And so when that is the goal, when that's the standard, then that is also the limit that you automatically set on all those students. And some students may decide to figure out what 10 times 11 is, and some may decide to figure out what 25 times 37 is, but the reality is that all of your problems, all of your things are gonna go up to this level, mm -hmm. and then they're gonna stop, and they're not gonna go beyond that. And so when a student says, hey, I can do up to 10 times 10, and up to 100 divided by any of these numbers, then they've reached that limit and they're not going to push beyond that unless they have some reason to. Unless and, unless you that you unless you make it so that it means something to them, right? It has yeah. it has meaning. Um I remember there's a I think it was seventh or eighth grade. And I remember after class one day there was a particular science teacher I liked and we were chatting and I said, Yeah, I, I understand the metric system. And he picked up a box of paper clips and he said, okay, you do? How much does this weigh in ah. grams? <laughs> and of course, I didn't have a very good answer because I knew how to do, I knew what the, you know, the, 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 the terms meant. I knew that this is a thousand times more than that, but I didn't have a feel. I didn't have numeracy, um, a sense about, about those numbers. So, you know, I think people bemoan the fact that somebody can't do calculations, students can't do calculations in their heads the way my parents' generation did. I would say, yeah, yeah, but you know, the, the but the, they're going to have to use technology to do that. But the key is when the answer comes out, 
did they know that, you know, when I added two three-digit numbers, I should be getting another three-digit number or a low four-digit number. I shouldn't be getting something with seven digits, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Did did I did I have enough understanding of the conceptual uh, principles? Um, because sure, it would be nice if everybody could add things in their head, but the reality is there aren't many times when people need to do that anymore. Yeah. Um, and and we can use technology for that. And almost in every situation, we're going to have technology for that. And and it's honestly silly to think that we wouldn't you know i mean i on that front i would say the vast majority of my calculations now happen in a spreadsheet using spreadsheet and formulas much more than even using a simple calculator and that right, that right. is the that is the literacy that is much more valuable and you know what's funny is is using chat gpt to do mathematical things um i've seen how it totally makes up numbers and does things incorrectly and doesn't have a firm grasp of of what those skills are and if i were just using it as a calculator punching things in and trusting that it's right i would be wrong many of the times that i've tried to use it for those things and mm -hmm. and that's that's that literacy or that numeracy that you're talking about where you have to understand the bigger picture and you have to have those foundational skills in order for you to know whether or not those tools are actually helping. And to your point earlier about making life for teachers easier by taking some of the workload off, um, that's important too. But if, if you ask the AI to write you a lesson, but you don't understand what you're trying to teach in the lesson, it does you no good to have the AI right. do that task for you. And That's so right. you still have to have some of these skills and you can't rely on it wholeheartedly without having an understanding as well. And that's a nuanced piece of this that uh, I think the general public doesn't totally understand. They see what AI can do and they think, well, that's amazing. And you know, another last example about this particular topic is um, I use a program called Descript to edit my podcasts. And it has this thing where it automatically finds filler words. Like if somebody says, here, here's a good idea, then it'll take out that first here and say, this is probably a filler and we can delete it. But sometimes it gets it wrong. And right. as you're listening to it, then you're like, wait, you, you didn't understand what the person was trying to say. When I said like that time, I was trying to give an example or mm -hmm. use a simile and you took it as me using like as a filler word. And, you know, that you still have to have the understanding. And that's why this uh, foundational uh, literacy, numeracy, whatever these foundational knowledge pieces are, are so important. If we can, do you have anything to add to that or can we change gears? No, I think what we're talking about in terms of the general progression is we're moving to much more abstract, you know, I'll call it increasing levels of ab abstraction. Right. Whereas it used to be useful to solve a math problem. Now it's useful to be, get a computer to solve a math problem in the workplace. It's, you know, when people get more experienced, the best ones know which math to pick to ask a computer to do in the future. When AI is doing, it knows which math to pick. It's about us setting up the problem so that AI can figure out which math is appropriate. 
right? It increases, increases our level of abstraction. And what I would claim is that we don't get to those higher levels of abstraction by having people do all the levels underneath. I don't teach somebody to be a good construction worker with heavy equipment by handing them a shovel and having them shovel for a month. That's a really good analogy that we need to teach them how to use the tools they're actually going to use and understand what they what they really need to be doing, what their purpose is in that role. Yeah, uh, this was a great conversation. Um, time just flew by. Uh, yeah, it was fun. I, yeah, I appreciate this. And, I like that I wasn't um, talking all the time. <laughs> yeah, uh, good stuff. So uh, definitely a lot more to talk to. I definitely suggest that people um, check out your book, which is Wisdom Factories, AI Games and the Education of a Modern Worker. Um, and we didn't even hardly talk about games and so much other stuff, but this was really good. Do you want to uh, share a place where people can go to connect with you, Tim? Yeah, the best place to go is timdacy.com. Um, and, you know, there are various options, both for my, about my book, you can learn about, you know, other articles, other podcasts, um, other uh uh, newsletters, et cetera, that I put out and as well as my consulting services. Excellent. That's timdacy.com. And thanks again, Tim, for being part of Transformative Principle in the Summer of AI series. Thanks, Jethro. 